Hi, I'm Kaylee. And I'm Sierra. And this is True Crime and Punishment. We are two friends who are using our professional writing degrees to research the motivation, perpetration, and investigation of various true crime cases. Today, Kaylee will be walking us through the Bermondsey Horror. The Bermondsey Horror, also known as the Victorian Love Triangle Murders. And as with any good love triangle, you know that means we're going to have three key people involved in this case. The first of which is a woman named Marie Desroux. Marie was born in Switzerland. She was a Swiss domestic servant. Marie emigrated to England, where she was a maid to the rich Lady Blantyre, who was the daughter of the Duchess of Sutherland. Not much is known about her history before she moved to England. We just know that she was a Swiss domestic servant who moved to England for hopes of a better shot at making money. We also know that it was in the service of her Lady Blantyre that Marie became interested in the finer things of life. The idea of living in poverty was just an unthinkable horror. Because Marie, she was a servant, but while she was a servant, she was a lady's maid, which within the hierarchy of society and servitude in the 1850s, this position would have given her some historical clout amongst other servants. They wouldn't have mixed quite as freely because she was an elevated servant. It was in 1846, while in the service of her lady, that Marie met a man, the second figure in her story, Patrick O'Connor. She met him on a boat trip to Boulogne, which is a city in France. Um, And I did Google how to pronounce that because I am a dumb American, don't know how to pronounce French. Patrick O'Connor was 50. Oh, how old was Marie <laughs> at the time? Um, she was in her early 20s. Oh, okay. He was a wealthy man. Uh, he made his money as both a money lender and as a customs officer. So he got his money for his money lending businesses as a customs officer. So he would give the go ahead for things to come through on boats. And if you had the right amount of money, just about anything you wanted could get the go-ahead from good old Patrick O'Connor, if you get what I mean. A bit shady. Just a bit. So he had a smuggling scheme, but then he turned it into his official money-lending business, which is where he continued to make money. Maria was charmed by Patrick, because who wouldn't be charmed by a rich Irish man? Did I mention oh. that he was Irish? No, you didn't. That makes money more sense. And- <laughs> money and an accent. Oh, my. She was, of course, charmed by Patrick. And... This is kind of impressive because she was used to seeing so much opulence in her service to Lady Blantyre. Like, if you want to get an idea of how rich Lady Blantyre was, Queen Victoria frequently visited her home. Ooh. So, like, the literal queen would show up. You have to know that you're, like, comfortably opulent, you know? (laughs) So, Marie was charmed by Patrick because who wouldn't be charmed by him? Um, She suggested that they see each other the next time they were both in London because, remember, they were on that boat trip to France and she worked in London. O'Connor promised that he'd take her out to a meal when next he was in London, and the two went their separate ways. It suggested that they had seen each other previously in society. They had run in similar circles, but they weren't quite on that edge of flirting quite yet. So Patrick promised to take her out to a meal. You know, date stuff. (laughs) (laughs) However, Patrick would not make it back to England until about 1847. That's when he looked Marie up again and said, hey, I want to take you out to dinner. But at that point, Marie had already found another guy. Oh, dear. Here's our third figure in our love triangle. Frederick George Manning was a guard for the Great Western Railway. Well, he was for a time, at least. He was eventually dismissed from his job under suspicion of involvement in some robberies. While he didn't get convicted of said robberies, he was close enough to them that when his name came up, he was dismissed from his work. But this didn't matter to Frederick. He made some money as a guard for this Great Western Railway. 
but the real money he was set to inherit would come when his mother passed away. He was set to inherit a great fortune. So now Marie has two guys in her circle, both of whom are interested in her to some degree. And eventually, Manning would ask to marry her. But she had a choice to make. She didn't want to remain in poverty. Marie had to consider which man would be best able to provide her with a comfortably opulent lifestyle she felt that she deserved. O'Connor was already wealthy, but there was this heavy drinking and the 20-year age gap between them that had to be considered. He had also dragged his feet in asking her to marry him. According to some sources, he hadn't asked her at all. He just kind of strung the pretty Swiss maid along. Manning was closer to Marie in age, but also closer to her in wealth. But that was no matter, considering he had money to inherit as soon as his mother passed away. His lot in life would soon be remedied, and he would be a wealthy man as well. He was also easier to manipulate than O'Connor, something that Marie certainly would have seen as an advantage. So what's a girl to do? You got two options. Mm. Tough choice. Tough choice. You can pick the wealthy or you can pick the soon-to-be-wealthy. Marie chose Frederick. Marie and Frederick were married in May of 1847. However, soon after, Marie found that Frederick had been lying about his upcoming fortune. Oh, no. There was no inheritance. None. His father had passed away and left him a sum of about 400 pounds, but there was no great money to be had when his mother passed away as well. Marie had picked the wrong man. Mm. Oh, dear. But soon after, O'Connor wrote Marie, admitting his love, promising that he would love her and that he would had been set to marry her but had not acted quickly enough. Wait not acted quickly enough so does that mean that he was aware that at this time she was a married woman yes he knew (gasps) so here she was a broke husband and a rich man who was definitely still interested in her so marie soon began an affair Mm. marie at this point is married to frederick george manning while still continuing her relationship with patrick o'connor that's not going to go terribly wrong at any point right (laughs) of course not the Mannings eventually bought an inn in Taunton called the the White Hart. While it, they lived in Taunton, it was said that Marie would go to stay with Patrick several times, and it was like a well, it was a well known thing that Marie Manning and Patrick O'Connor had something going on. But it's mm. Victorian England. What are you gonna do? It would also seem that uh, good old Frederick over here didn't have too much of an issue with this because it's it was reported that he took up with multiple women in town. Oh. So eventually, after a while, the Mannings living in Taunton, the they had to sell the White Hart Inn. <clears throat> after they had to sell their inn, it was said that there had been suspicion of a robbery, and it was also thought that Marie had essentially ratted out a couple of guys. And so she was a rat. No one wanted to stay at her hotel anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> the Mannings had to sell the White Hart, and then they bought a house on Miniver Place in Bermondsey in southeast London. Ooh, Bermondsey. Where have we heard that before? <laughs> so at this point, Marie has been married to, to Manning and is also carrying on an affair with O'Connor. But she decides that she needs to pick one man. She should have decided that a bit sooner, I think. I would say so. Um, <laughs> when entering the bonds of holy matrimony, I feel like you should decide on that one that one guy probably. But who knows? But better late than never, she's still making a choice, so what does she choose? Well, Marie decides that she and Patrick need to part ways, but she finds herself unwilling to part 
with Patrick's money. Ah, that was always his most attractive feature, besides the accent, of course. Of course. So it's also, I found this a little strange while doing my research. It seems that it seems that Manning was aware of the affair and he was also comfortable with O'Connor being in their home. Um, because Ew. you know what? <laughs> the, <I'm Manning's> invi- <laughs> the Mannings invited O'Connor over for dinner on August 8th in 1849. Now, this is two years after the Mannings were married. Hmm. And of course, O'Connor was delighted. He said, of course, I'll come. I'll be there. But that night, he surprised the Mannings because he brought a man by the name of Pierce Walsh along with him to dinner. They had just celebrated a big business win that day. And so he was going to dinner as a celebration. He invited Pierce Walsh to come along with him. Now, this upset Marie just a little bit. She was kind of hoping for some alone time with Connor. So she kind of pulled him aside and said, hey, I was really hoping you would come alone because I wanted to spend some time with you. Just you, not this Pierce Walsh guy. (laughs) Just you and my husband. (laughs) (laughs) And my husband. (laughs) Um, So could you come back to dinner tomorrow night? But please come alone and o'connor said of course i'll come back tomorrow night now let's skip ahead to the morning after august 9th that's the second day that patrick was said to be having dinner with the mannings that evening marie manning had gone down to patrick's home on the 9th and collected a few items and called after uh, o'connor which was strange because he was supposed to be having dinner at the mannings house she came by again the next day called after patrick and he was not there it wasn't until three days after his death that some of O'Connor's colleagues showed up to the Manning's house um, trying to figure out where O'Connor had gone. He hadn't showed up for work. That had been strange. He was a very business-minded man. He was very professional in his business dealings. He would not have missed work or a meeting that was important as the one that he missed was. So his colleagues went to his home where his housekeeper told them, oh, Marie Manning was here last night and the night before calling after him as well. And I've not seen O'Connor since the the first night that marie came calling after him he was supposed to go to dinner at the manning's house o'connor's colleagues thought okay well we'll go call at the manning's it's a it's a well-known secret that that o'connor and marie have something going on so they thought maybe he's still there maybe he stayed the night maybe he stayed a couple of nights maybe he fell ill at dinner and just didn't come home and maybe marie coming by the house was a was a distraction to pick up clothes or something like that who knows so they go and they talk to marie and she says i haven't seen patrick he was supposed to be here for dinner on the 9th but he never came so i went to his house to make sure he was okay and then i went back again the next day and he wasn't home then either and so o'connor's colleagues say well all right, thank you so much for telling us. We're going to keep looking for him. And they think this is very odd. So what do they do? They go to the police. And they tell the police of the happenings um, and that they couldn't find Patrick O'Connor. And so the next day, the police show up at the Manning's home. Marie tells them the same thing, that Patrick had been invited to dinner and he had not shown up that night. And she hasn't seen him since. When they asked after her husband, she said that Frederick was at church. And they would be going out that evening, and neither would be available to speak to the police should they arrive to their home. Oh, interesting thing <laughs> to tell the police. <laughs> like, yeah, my husband's not here, and we're not going to be here later, so don't show up again. <laughs> the police leave, and they do intend to call again because they need to speak to Frederick Manning, they need to speak to Marie Manning, and just see what's going on. However, soon after, Marie Manning is seen leaving the home 
with a lot of luggage. Oh. And that's a little odd. No one's seen Frederick in a few days. So now we can't find Patrick. We can't find Frederick. And then Marie leaves. So the police are watching the home because they think something strange has happened. And one day they see a man walking up to the Manning's home. And they stop him and they ask who he is, what's going on, thinking that perhaps this is Frederick Manning. However, the man says, I'm not Frederick Manning. I'm going up to their home because I bought all the furniture inside the home from Frederick Manning. Oh. So the police decide that something obviously gone wrong, something bad has happened. And so they decide to search the Manning's home. So they rip apart the house. They don't find anything in the house. They certainly don't find Patrick O'Connor. They go to the back garden and they start digging up the garden to try and find evidence of what happened to both the Mannings and to Patrick O'Connor. After a thorough search turned up nothing, officers decided to do a, basically one last sweep through the home to see if they can find anything. And an officer sees that two of the flagstones in the kitchen looked like they, like they had been recently cleaned and like there was some sort of substance between them. Wow, that's a very like technical detail to notice yeah like oh these flagstones look new and there's something there let's let's look at that so they decide to dig up the flagstones to see what what's underneath um i don't know what they expected to find but what they ended up finding was after digging about a foot down they found a body of a man the man had been shot stripped covered in quicklime and buried beneath the flagstones in the kitchen oh Using dental records, they were able to identify the man as Patrick O'Connor. Oh, the luck of the Irish was not with him. Not that day. So now the search for Patrick O'Connor was off, and the search for the Mannings was on. Marie had run after speaking to police, taking with her all this luggage. Now, remember when I said that Marie had shown up at Patrick's house that night and the night after, trying to figure out where he was since he hadn't shown up for dinner? Yes. Turns out, uh, Sticky Fingers Marie was in there digging through his important documents and finding all his railway shares and a couple other important things. She had stolen them the first oh. night and then come back the next night because she decided she had not taken enough. So uh, O'Connor's colleagues and his cousin were able to look through and say his, his railway shares are missing. This is missing. Some big ticket items are gone. Marie had run with the railway shares and police tracked her to London Bridge Station. There, investigators found some of her luggage had been abandoned. Inside her luggage, they found Marie's bloodstained clothes, letters to and from Patrick, and some documents from Patrick's home. Mm. So thus proving that something had happened and that she'd clearly been in Patrick's home um, and taken some things. Not to be rude, but I feel like if you have bloodstained clothes, you should maybe burn those instead of... Leaving them in a public place. I mean, I guess please leave them in a public place so that you get caught. But still. Yeah, I, I you'll find very quickly that the Mannings were not very smart in how they ran. Um, I mean, I guess they thought that if they just <laughs> covered a body in quicklime and hit them beneath the flagstones in the kitchen, you know, no one could figure out who it is. Not to be on a tangent, but what does quicklime do? Um, quicklime is like a chemical compound. It's... The Mannings used it because they thought it would help um, decompose his body faster. But in reality, it's known for taking moisture out of the air and, like, out of things. So it actually preserved his body. But it's used oh. for several different things. But it's, like, it's like a drying agent. Oh, okay. I got you. Yeah. Good question. 
Thank you. We've used it to kill lice in our basement before. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> so they found those at London Station where they've been abandoned. I'm not sure if they just didn't make her connecting train and she didn't want to come back for them. Or she was like, if I leave these here, no one will know that they're mine, despite the fact <laughs> my name is on everything. Um, I can't comment on that because, you know, this happened so long ago. It's not like I can ask the Mannings what they were thinking. Um, but they were able to track Marie from London Station to Euston Station, where she traveled to Edinburgh. First class. Of course, because why not be a little bit more conspicuous while you run? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Let's not be subtle or anything. First class. Probably with Patrick's money. Um, While in Edinburgh, Marie was trying to convert the stocks and shares she'd stolen from Patrick um, to cash so she could flee the country. However, part of the shares had been reported as stolen because, remember, his colleagues and cousin were able to say what was missing. And stockbrokers contacted the police after these stocks that have been flagged as stolen uh showed up in their stores um so the police had not said why they were looking for those shares i don't believe based on the sources i saw um but they had known that they'd been stolen so when they heard that a woman was trying to sell them they thought that's marie manning and off to edinburgh they were so those police officers had to do a bit of traveling like crossing away from their from their territory yeah um actually they've been alerted by telegraph um, it was like a fairly new invention. It was invented in May. It was like May 24th, 1844. And I believe it was one of the first times that they uh, telegraph really helped solve a long distance case like this. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, it was really cool. So the police had a suspicion that it was Marie Manning and they found her in Edinburgh a week after she'd left Bermondsey. So and then it took three days to extradite her back to London. So they were working that was another cool thing is a lot of times if you have any interest in true crime, you see that police departments don't always work the best together. And in this case, they did. There was good communication, good follow through. So they took it took three days to extradite her back to London. So all in all, Marie Manning was on the run for about 10 days. Well, seven days and then three days. But she was out of Bermondsey for 10 days. So next, the police had to find Frederick Manning. Marie had taken off the shares, so Frederick had just sold all the furniture in the house and cut and run. <laughs> Another thing that I saw noted a lot that I thought was really interesting was Frederick was often said to be a very average-looking man. <laughs> so this poor, basic, well, not poor, he's a terrible person. This basic man <laughs> led to many, since he looks so common, um, many false reports have been given across the continent. So there, people were saying he's popping up in Edinburgh, he's in London, he's here, he's there. Because I, I believe he was like a short-ish, but not freakishly short man, brown hair, average build, average looking. So he was just basically average. So he was hard to find. <laughs> but on August 28th, two weeks after the police had begun investigating, they finally received a solid lead. The way they found Frederick was actually somewhat by chance. He had been recognized on a steamship going to Jersey. The person who recognized him was the sister of of someone who owned a home where frederick had stayed okay that is a random connection it really is so she recognized him she was not aware of the murder of patrick o'connor at this time but once she was she was able to tell police that frederick had been on this steamship going to jersey so police they're not too hopeful that he'll still be in jersey because why would he still be in jersey it's been two weeks however Police found him after searching Jersey for a few days, um, and they took him into custody on August 30th, nine days after his wife. 
Now, one another thing to know is when Marie was taken into custody, she was calm, collected, and silent. She had nothing to say to officers and nothing to say to anyone else. Frederick, however, um, was delighted to find that Marie had been arrested and was quick to say that Marie alone had been the perpetrator of this murder. Mm-mm. He just threw her under the bus. Directly under that bus. Now, onto the trial. The Mannings were tried together, though Marie's lawyer tried to attempt to get her her own trial. Um, I found this quote, but in those days, a wife could not be charged an accessory after the fact for a murder committed by her husband. Um, it was presumed that the wife's first loyalty had to be to her spouse. So, so the trial would need to show that she had like knowledge that her husband had planned the crime and that she directly took part in it or that she'd acted on her own initiative. Or had attempted to make a profit from this crime. So proving that would be the focus of her solo trial. As opposed to with the joint trial. It would be focused on the fact that she and her husband had committed a murder. The lawyer was unsuccessful to get her her own trial. One thing the lawyer tried to get Marie her own trial. Was to say that Marie was a Swiss domestic servant. She was not an English citizen by birth so therefore she would need a jury of half foreigners and half native people however the judge ruled that she was married to an english citizen therefore she herself was an english citizen (laughs) so they were tried together in the trial it was discovered that the mannings had purchased a shovel and that lime that was mentioned earlier a few days before the murder oh interesting timing Throughout this trial, we got a few more details of what was speculated to have happened to Patrick O'Connor. It is widely speculated that O'Connor got up to wash his hands before the meal and that it's believed that Marie shot him in the head at close range. But the shot did not kill him. The bullet fractured his skull and went under his skin before ending just above his eyebrow. Oh my goodness. But again, this did not kill him, so I'm sure that panicked the Mannings. And then it's also believed that Frederick took some sort of implement whether it be like a crowbar or some sort of pipe and beat o'connor over the head several times but again the mannings basically blamed each other so we don't have a solid story of what happened but that is the most widely believed but that is the most widely believed story yikes so all this evidence was given and the jury took 45 minutes to reach a verdict and they decided that the mannings were guilty of the murder of patrick o'connor now It was Frederick's turn to be silent. He said nothing as the verdict was read. However, Marie erupted, claiming that the courts did her wrong because she was foreign. She hadn't had a fair trial. This was this was unfair, blah, blah, blah. And I will say that the news outlets automatically painted Marie as the person behind the entire thing. And that poor, weak minded Frederick had just been drug along. Poor Frederick. He's so average. He's so weak minded. He definitely didn't beat a man in the skull several times. Of course not. Crowbar. Of course not. Or help her bury him, I'm sure. I'm sure he Mm -mm. did nothing. I'm sure she did that all by herself. There was also um, an attempt to say that Marie had, that Frederick had killed O'Connor when Marie went to call on (laughs) O'Connor. But that was proven false. That They tried to say that she wouldn't have had enough time to go down there and then come back and assist in the murder of him. So that she was aware, but she had not acted. But that was also proven to be incorrect. She could have done both. And it's it's believed that she went down to get his belongings after they'd already killed O'Connor. They were guilty of murder, and the court's judgment was execution. 
um, with any court trial, especially one with any execution verdict, you have the right to appeal. Um, only Marie tried to appeal. Just like when he was silent in the courtroom, Frederick just accepted the fact that this was his end. Marie appealed on the grounds that she was not legally married. Marie said she wasn't legally married to Manning because he was previously married before and that the woman was still alive and therefore she was in a bigamous marriage, which was not legally binding, which meant that had that been true, the judge's previous decision to say that you're married to an English man, which means you get a full English jury. So she's saying, I'm not legally married to this guy because it's a bigamous marriage. Therefore, I should have gotten my trial with half foreign people and half English people. That turned out to be false. He, There was no other wife. He was not in a bigamous marriage. They were legally married. And so her guilty verdict and execution was upheld. Now we're going to move to the execution. Um, it was just before 9 o'clock, Tuesday, November 13th, 1849. 30,000 people gathered to watch the Mannings be executed. 30,000? 30, 30,000. People were buying seats on rooftops. They were buying room at windows to lean out and be able to see. The crowd was just a crush of people waiting to see the Mannings be executed. This had been a massive story. Husband and wife kill wife's lover. It had been everywhere. Marie Manning was pretty much universally hated because they saw her as this like seductress, this temptress who had dragged Patrick O'Connor down and had browbeaten her poor husband and then killed her lover for his money. Which she had killed her lover for his money. But... Is Yes. Is there a reason they were targeting Marie more than Frederick? Like, why not, you know, hold them both accountable? Like, I would say it's probably because she's a woman and not to get too whatever, but she was a woman who had committed a heinous act in a time where literally the law stated that a woman's first loyalty should be to her husband. So if her husband committed a murder and she covered it up, she couldn't be expected to have had any say in that because she was to submit to her husband. So the fact that a woman had committed a murder was just a huge story. And it was just something that people were so interested in. It's like the gossip column of today. But I I generally do believe that it was because she was a woman who had committed a murder in a time where people thought that women would not be violent as a man would be violent. All these people had gathered to watch the Mannings be executed. Frederick was the first to be brought to the gallows. It's reported that he had to be assisted up the stairs. Marie soon followed walking steadily um she was wearing a black satin dress and a black veil now there are some reports that say that marie manning and frederick manning reached over and shared a final kiss before they were executed by hanging um i do not believe that to be true and i'll tell you why in a second but the mannings were then hung it's reported that frederick died instantly but marie struggled for a few seconds before she stopped moving entirely in a fair bit of irony Um, Their bodies were then displayed in caskets that were lined with quicklime, just like the makeshift tomb they had created for Patrick O'Connor. Was that because that was normal procedure or did the coroner do that or whoever it was as just like for the procedure? Okay. Procedure. It helps with smell as well because it takes some of that moisture out of the air. Oh, okay. But the Times Times reported that in an instant, Calcraft, which is the executioner, withdrew the bolt, the drop fell, and the sentence of the law was fulfilled. Frederick died almost without a struggle while Maria, um, that's another, while Maria writhed for some seconds. Their bodies were left to hang for the customary hour before they were taken down in the evening and buried in the precincts of Gowell. 
So they also, their bodies were left to hang there for an hour. Um, this quote does refer to her as Maria. She is also known as Maria or Maria. Um, she changed her name to Maria so that English people would have a better time or an easier time pronouncing it. Um, but a lot of sources still refer to her as Marie, which is what I chose to refer to her as throughout this. So another big portion of this case is that there was that massive public execution. Like so many people. Um, and in that crowd, um, there were two famous authors, the first of which was Herman Melville. Melville? What was an American Mel- doing over there? I don't know, but he he paid half a crown to witness the execution. I believe he was on a rooftop. Um, yeah, he was on a rooftop overlooking the execution. He wrote in his diary for that day that the man and wife were hung side by side, still unreconciled to each other. What a change from the time they stood up to be married together. Now, it's Melville's quote that makes me think that them saying, oh, they shared a kiss before they died, was was not true because I feel Melville would have noted that instead of saying that they were unreconciled to each other. Yeah. Ryder definitely would have put some tragic romantic twist on that. I'm sure. <laughs> of course. Of course. Um, Across, the pond. Across the pond. Um, you also find if you look into this case, you'll find a lot of misinformation out there. If you find any information about Marie's life from pre Swiss domestic servant in England days, that all comes from a source that has been proven to be not credible. It's kind of made up. So the kiss is also from there. Mm-hmm. So some of that information, you know, be careful when you look in your sources. But um, another famous author that was there was Charles Dickens. Oh, of course. And Dickens is famously against public execution. He finds it to be morally degrading to a society. And he wrote that very long but he said i believe that a sight so inconceivably awful as the wickedness and levity of an immense crowd collected at the execution this morning could be imagined by no man and can be presented in no heathen land under the sun the horrors of the gibbet and the crime which brought the wretched murders to it faded in my mind before the atrocious bearing looks and language of the assembled spectators and this crowd went crazy um, I believe a woman was killed in the crush of the crowd and a couple men were injured. There were so many people there. It's actually reported as being 30,000, between 30,000 and 50,000 people. Oh my goodness. And it was, it was an event. There were people selling snacks. There were people selling spots on rooftops as Herman Melville got to see. And it was just, it was, it was not just a punishment for a crime. It was entertainment. Mm. And if you want to read an excellent book, on this um, topic, The Woman Who Murdered Black Satin by Albert Barowitz. He has a very detailed write-up of this case. Um, It's called The Woman Who Murdered Black Satin because when Marie was hung in black satin, it actually is reported to have gone out of vogue for a few years after that because that's how famous this case and trial was. Mm. But that is the case of the Bermondsey Horror, also known as the Victorian Love Triangle Murders. Mm. Murder. What are your thoughts, Sierra? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, talking about the authors, because you said you mentioned how Dickens was so against the death penalty. It also reminded me of Victor Hugo. He wrote a short story, The Last Days of a Condemned Man, which was also talking about how public execution became such a spectacle. And it is really sad because obviously Marie Manning and 
Frederick George Manning, they obviously killed a man. They did wrong. What they did did deserve punishment. But that doesn't mean that everybody should have rejoiced at their deaths. Like we meet out justice because it's right, not because it's enjoyable to punish someone mm-hmm. for that. Right. And then another thing, Dickens does find it abhorrent, but he was there and he did base a book character off of Marie Manning. If you've ever read um, Bleak House, Lady Deadlock's Maid, Mademoiselle Hortense, um, she is a character that hates her employer and she thinks that she's above her job as a servant. She's really comfortable. She wants that wealthy, opulent life like Marie did. And in that book, spoiler for Bleak House, <laughs> um, Madame's, the Mademoiselle Hortense commits a murder. And so that's based directly off Marie Manning. So even though he was very against the murder, he still used their trial and the outcome to kind of influence his own work. Well, not really the right. trial, I guess, just the action, the act itself. Just the, yeah, just the action. But I'm not saying that says that's saying that he was insincere in his dislike. I just see that there's always going to be an interest in things like that. That's true. It's kind of like the whole true crime as a genre. We acknowledge that it's really awful, but there's still something about the stories that we find gripping and captivating. Right. And Marie Manning, despite the fact that she was so, um, she was very cold and she was very aggressive at the end of her trial, she was terrified to die. You could, she, the night before her execution, she attempted to um, commit suicide by strangling herself to death, death by strangling herself um, with her own hands. And she was, it was unsuccessful. She was stopped. And Dickens also writes about the fear in her eyes and how, see, now Mrs. Manning's last moments clearly explain, or rather indisputably prove, the benefit in which society practically derives from a public execution. As for a few fleeting moments, she stood with bandaged eyes beneath the gibbet. How unanswerably did the pictures mute, mutely expound the terror which the wicked very naturally have been publicly hanged with the scum and refuse, refuse of society. So she's reported as looking scared. It was, it's the last moments of someone's life. So it's, it's very, it's interesting to see it be such a spectacle, but death tourism and dark tourism have always been a big thing. But the Manning murders, um, it's also a good show of how there was publicity before the execution and after the execution that Marie Manning was always seen as the main villain. And it is, I don't know, it's a crazy case. It's, it's, there's a lot of, Interesting details out there about this case, but poor Patrick O'Connor didn't deserve to die, obviously. <laughs> it's also, yeah. I don't know, I think one of the cool aspects is you see the there's been such a cultural impact because of this, from Dickens being very outspoken about public execution and about morality. Because the Manning's, it was like one of the first executions of a husband and wife to take place in Britain since like seven, the 1700s. Oh, wow. So it wasn't a common fate. I think sometimes we think back on Victorian and prior to that, England was just like, they were just hanging everybody for everything out there. <laughs> but this was definitely like a a big case in society. Wow. That's sad. It is sad. I mean, <laughs> I always feel like, oh yeah, it's sad. Of course it's sad. It involves death. But not only do the Mannings affect the life of Patrick O'Connor and his loved ones, they had a effect in their death on so many people that it was morally degrading to more than just Patrick O'Connor. And I think it's cool that Dickens was 
to to use modern vernacular, <laughs> calling that out as he saw it. Yeah. And to just speak out against that, to use a bad situation and say, yeah, this is bad for them, but it's also bad for everybody else. Yeah. Is there anything else you think we should discuss? I don't think so. I think that's okay. it. <laughs> so join us next week. Uh, we'll be going back across the pond and Sierra will be talking us through the Peppermint case. It'll hit a little bit closer to home. It's a little bit more recent as well. And yeah, I think it will be an interesting time. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening and join us next week so we can talk at you again. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.